Y'all are the noisiest group. I spoke to groups of 3,000 that quiet down faster than you guys do. <laughs> Somebody wrote me a note that says, don't mess up. <laughs> I love it. Um, if this is your first time to New Hope, and I would encourage you to take the time to do this, please pull out one of the welcome cards in the pew rack in front of you and uh, give us your name, and we'll be happy to send correspondence back to you about the church and keep you on the mailing list so when we send letters out, you have those. Um, also, when I teach, I use a, a revised standard um, version, New American Standard Bible, sorry, and that's in the pew rack in front of you. Some of you might have NIV copies, New International Version. Those are in the pew rack in front of you also. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you'll find those in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those copies with you so that you have your own copy of God's Word. We, um, we hold God's Word at, a, at an extraordinarily high value here at New Hope. It's uh, the solid foundation on which we do what we do here. And we want to be accurate in everything we do. You may have picked that up if, if you're very new here, just from Michael's teaching about how we do worship and why we do that. It's, it's built upon the Word of God. Um, I want to clarify something for you in light of that that I shared last week, that it's very important that I do this. You may not think so, but I want to make it very clear for you. Last week I shared with you a timeline of the existence of Adam to Noah and Noah to Abram, or Abraham as he's called later. And in that timeline, I said that Noah was living at the same time that Adam was living. Adam lived into Noah's lifetime, and that was in error. That was inaccurate. I actually have a graph in my office, a chart in my office, that shows the timelines of who lived when. And my graph, my chart, shows that indeed Adam overlapped the life of Noah by a few years. Well, one of the friends of mine and I were speaking earlier this week, and he has a chart that shows it differently. And, and it shows that uh, Noah indeed was born after Adam died. So instead of going back to the Internet and looking on another timeline chart, I got God's Word out, and I did a little mathematical equation, and I went through the ten generations and added them all up. And indeed, Adam died 126 years before Noah was born. Okay? So, now I'm not trying to be in your crosshairs, but if you notice things that your pastor says that you think, huh, um, don't hesitate to talk with me about that. We want to be accurate in the things that we represent to be God's things and in God's Word. So, with that in mind, we're going to start back into Genesis 12 this morning. And uh, if you would turn in your Bibles there, that'd be great. And it'll also be up on the screen you'll find a recurring theme as we work through the Old Testament, a recurring theme that pops up again and again in the New Testament, and that is that there is from Adam in the Garden of Eden all the way to Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, a recurring theme in which there's a threat to God's plan. God lays a plan and a purpose, and man does something, and in nearly every episode of Scripture... From the blessings of saying there's going to be numerous seed, Abram, all the way to I'm going to give you the land and there's going to be great peoples on the earth because of you and what you do. There's always someone who seems to intercede and try and place God's plan in jeopardy. So much so that many times the promise looks like it's going to fail. It looks like what God has laid out is going to be placed in jeopardy. And God Himself has to enter the arena 
and do battle on our behalf and intercede to make sure that his plan stays on track. It happens over and over again. And here's a truth that you can count on. Man's failure or wrong actions, as you're going to see today and what we're going to look at, does not ever throw God's plan off track. It never stands in the way of God fulfilling His plan. I find uh, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to be remarkable in, in the way that they have bounced back like no nation ever has on the face of this earth. No nation in the existence of mankind has ever gone out of existence for 1,900 years and then only to resurface again as the nation of Israel did in 1948. They are a remarkable, remarkable people. They are truly God's people. As a matter of fact, here's a quote I want to share with you that I came across in my studies. It'll be up on the screen. If the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous, dim puff of smoke lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, as has always been heard of. He is, a prom he is prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. Mark Twain. They indeed became a nation that God greatly blessed. God said, I will bless you and make your name great. And it is a marvelous thing to look at what God has done through the nation of Israel and how they keep bouncing back. Today's text, what we're going to look at, has all the makings of a great novel. It is a phenomenal story. Now briefly, our, our overview starting back last week, we started with Abram being called out of Ur, a very prosperous city in which they had uh, courts and culture and art and science. He was a city boy, and in about 2000 B.C., God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, it's called, into a journey. And Abraham departs, Abram, he's called at this time, he departs out of Ur, which is in southern Iraq, down near the Kuwaiti border, and he goes north to the northern part of Iraq, and he settles in Turkey in a little town called Haran, H-A-R-A-N, which, as a matter of fact, is in the center of a trade route at that time. And this is a city, Haran, which is dedicated to the worship of idols. So much so that later on you're going to find out in a generation later at the time of Jacob, they worship idols so highly that Jacob's uncle Laban wants to kill him because he's stolen his idols. Now briefly, they leave Haran after leaving there for, living there for 15 years and they go down into what we call Israel today. They called Canaan at that time because it was the land of the Canaanites where they lived. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran and went down into Canaan. He brought his entire household. And as you learned last week, he wasn't supposed to bring his whole household. God said, depart from your family and go to the land that I'll show you. But he brought his entire household with him. And he stops in a place called Shechem. And he builds an altar to God. 
And God appears to him at Shechem and reassures him of the promise and said, I will make your name great. And then Abram picks up his tents and they move down into an area called Ai and Bethel and he builds another altar to God. And at this point, Abram is calling on God. He is seeking after God, seeking after God's direction. But then something remarkable happens. And that's what we're going to pick up today in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. A famine enters the land. Now we don't know if this was um, weeks or months or even years after he entered the promised land that this famine comes about. But we do know that it was extraordinarily severe. You'll learn in just a little bit that it caused great numbers of people to migrate out of Israel, out of the area of Canaan. Now remember, there is no discipling or mentoring going on for Abram. Abram is a new believer. He's followed God because God's told him to pick up his family and do this. But there's no church he can go to to get encouragement or direction. He doesn't know how to respond to this God that he doesn't know very well. He doesn't know God's nature and character. And I hope in a minute you're going to see how important it is. Now, I do give him a gold star. I'm going to put it right up on his chart for not running back to his family's land in the Ur of the Chaldees when the famine came. He didn't return to what was familiar. Instead, he went to what he thought would be safe. He's headed towards Egypt. So in verse 10 it says, Now there was famine in the land. God led him to the land of promise and appeared to him. And then he started wondering, I wonder if God has abandoned me. Why else would he leave except for self-preservation? Because he doesn't know God's nature and character. Now, I know that famines don't come overnight. It probably took months for it to sweep across the land of milk and honey. And then in the remainder of verse 10, it says, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. And the word sojourn in Hebrew literally means to stay temporarily. For the famine was severe in the land. You remember when maybe, uh, if you're a Christ follower, when you first came to Christ and your faith had not yet matured to the point to know whether or not you could trust God and you maybe encountered that first circumstance in which you had to share your faith or tell somebody about who you were or this decision that you made and you're probably very nervous inside. I'm sure that Abram experienced some of that feeling at this point because faith had not really matured in him to the point where he could trust God under any circumstance. And this, this famine that's so severe caused Abram to hear reports that their safety in this land called Egypt. The famine was regional. It was just in the area of Canaan, in the promised land. And so here comes a crisis, and he's got a chance to respond. So in verse 11, this is his response. It came about when he came near to Egypt, and meaning literally the border of Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may well go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, Abram's fearful for his life. So he's willing to deceive. 
but he's telling a half-truth. If you haven't heard this story before, Sarah, Sarai, his wife, is actually his stepsister. So he's not telling a complete lie, but it's a partial lie. It's his stepsister by his dad by another woman. So he said, tell him you're my sister. We'll hide this truth. But he probably didn't think of what was about to happen was going to happen. Because in Egypt, it was not uncommon for bride abduction to steal women and to kill the man. But this is what happens to him in verse 14. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, if you've read that over the years, that may not seem like a big deal to you. But consider the fact that at the border, he stopped by the border guards. And according to the Midrash, which is a writing of Jewish writings that gives a little more detail, they say that Abram actually tried to hide her in a trunk and she was uncovered. And she's not only so beautiful that they talk about her at the border, but the border workers actually go to the people at the palace. And the people at the palace actually go to their superiors. And the superiors go to the princes in the palace. And the princes in the palace go to Pharaoh and say, you've got to see this woman. She is amazing. As a matter of fact, I want to give you a little more detail archaeologically that we don't really get today. Because for a long time, you don't know this, but much in the world of academia refuted many of these stories in the Old Testament. Until a finding came about way back in the 1940s with a series of archaeological digs, and by mistake, they found something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, you may think you know a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I want to illuminate it a little bit for you today. This particular scroll advertisement appeared in the Wall Street Journal in 1954. Let me read this to you. Miscellaneous for sale. This is in the classifieds of the Wall Street Journal. The four Dead Sea Scrolls, biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 B.C., are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. Box F, 206 Wall Street Journal. You think? That's pretty amazing that they didn't understand the importance of these documents. Now, when the people in Israel saw this ad appear, that four of the Dead Sea Scrolls were going to be for sale at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, they got some representatives from Israel to come over with a bunch of cash and to go into the Waldorf Astoria and make a bid for these four scrolls. What they were later to discover is that these four scrolls were actually part of almost 1,000 scrolls that were discovered in an area known as the Qumran Society. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief little background on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's bring up that first image up there. This is the caves, the literal cave that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. This is the way it happened. A shepherd boy was out tending sheep. He was throwing rocks, trying to chase one of his sheep to come back to him. When he threw a rock into that hole in that cave that you see there, trying to make a sound, the rock hit a jar and smashed the jar. This is what one of the jars looked like. And when the jar smashed, it made a loud clanging sound. So he climbed up those cliffs, went into the cliffs, and found several of these jars. Now over a period of time, 
These jars were excavated over a period of six years, and they found various scrolls in them. Now, what's important about that? One of the scrolls inside the jars is called the Isaiah scroll. This is a literal photograph of the copy of the book of Isaiah dating back more than 1,000 years earlier than the earliest copy of the scriptures that we had to this point. As a matter of fact, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, the 1,000 scrolls that they found, there was a copy of every single book of the Old Testament written in the original Hebrew. And they took it and they matched it up to the copy of the scriptures that you have today, and word for word, it matched up, even though thousands of years had gone by. Now, I told you that this series in the book of Genesis was going to help you have a defense for your faith. You need not take a back seat to anyone. The word of God that you hold today is as accurate as it was when it was written. Now, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were also a series of commentaries Men who had written things in the Qumran society, part of the Essenes, also had handed down to them information about some of the things that we have today in the Scriptures, greater detail. We would call it extra-biblical detail. Now, these are not necessarily things that we want to bank our salvation on because they're not part of God's Holy Word, but they do give us information. One of the particular writings that was one of the oldest writings, was about a woman by the name of Sarah who had been abducted by a pharaoh in Egypt. Very interesting. Not in the Bible, but an archaeological dig. Let me read to you what they said about Sarah and her beauty. This is very, very old writing. The men returned to Pharaoh and described Sarah's features. Her beautiful face, her supple hair, lovely eyes, pleasant nose. Apparently that was a big deal to them. Her radiant face. They continued on describing her shape, perfect hands, and everything down to her long, slender, delicate fingers. The men rated her far higher than all women, more than all the virgins, more than all the birds. Apparently that was a big value to them too. <laughs> Never heard that one before. Hearing this and then seeing Sarah himself, the Pharaoh wanted her and took her for his wife. Hmm. Now, archaeology has gone a step further to verify Abraham's journey into Egypt. These are important details for you to know when you enter into discussions with people. A few years ago, a tomb was discovered. This tomb, and I barely can pronounce this pharaoh's name, Kanumhotep, who ruled around 1900 B.C. when Abram made the journey into Egypt, this particular pharaoh, at the end of his reign, was buried in a tomb known as Beni Hassan. This image is a picture from inside his tomb. One of the pharaohs who lived and reigned for about 40 years. This is the pharaoh who reigned at the time of Abram's journey into Egypt. Now, none of us in this room, I trust, can read hieroglyphics. I know I can't. But what I'm told by experts are that the writings on the wall in that tomb describe in detail the arrival of Asiatic man from the land of Canaan with his family and all of his slaves 
who walked into the land of Egypt because of the time of the famine to deal and to sojourn in the land. We don't know that that's actually Abram that they're talking about. What we do know is that people from the promised land during the time of around 1900 B.C. actually journeyed into the land of Egypt. It's written in the tombs. Very interesting that God would give us that detail. That He would reveal it to us at a day at this time when people are questioning the veracity of the truth of God. And we can authenticate it. Now, Egypt regularly experienced an influx of migration of people into their land because of the Nile River. Because it was a fertile crescent area and people wanted to come live along the water banks, especially during times of famine. And wife abduction was not an uncommon practice among these people. But look what's happened to Abram now. Because of his initial lack of faith, it now leads him to a point where he's trying to enact self-preservation. And self-preservation leads to lies. And then lies lead to conspiracy. He's trying to hide things. Now the report went from the workers to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh had a very high standard for beauty. Look at an image of Queen Nefertiri. Would you agree she's beautiful? That's a standard by which the Pharaoh said, our queens must measure up. Now, Sarah undoubtedly was a beautiful woman. And according to the Midrash, some of the Jewish writings, they believe that she might have been in Pharaoh's court in his royal mansion for up to two years, untouched, undefiled. But there came a point when he wanted to take her for his own. And life is pretty good for Sarah because in the Egyptian court, a queen was held very high. She was not only given her own dwelling place, but typically the pharaoh built her dwelling place in a park-like setting. He surrounded her area with ponds and vegetation because they believed that a woman should be exalted because she was the birth of life. So the pharaoh exalted the queen and lifted her up to a high place. He even gave her a place on the ruling council because they valued her wisdom. Abraham's fear was well-founded, wasn't it? His fear that his wife would be taken. But what he didn't realize he was doing is that he was putting in jeopardy the grandmother of Jesus, several times removed. He placed in danger the matriarch of the Jewish nation. Now pick it up with me at verse 16. It's talking about Pharaoh. Therefore, Pharaoh, he, treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. And you're saying, big deal. No, he hit the lottery. This is a big deal. God allowed Pharaoh to lavish upon him. Pharaoh paid what's called the bridal price. As a matter of fact, a little more detail says that he was also given linens and incense and aromatic fragrances and garments. It's ironic that not only was Abram's worst fear realized, but his wife was treated like a prostitute. He was given reward for turning his wife over to Pharaoh. Now look what happens in verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And once again, God has to intervene 
to protect the blessing. The blessing was what? I will make you into a great nation. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. God had to step in and intervene. The Midrash says that they all came down with boils on their skin when Pharaoh tried to take her for his wife, when he tried to bring her into his bedroom. They came down with skin diseases. That's what the Midrash says. Now notice, it's God who intervenes. Abraham was helpless. He had no power to intervene on his own because he had disobeyed God. And notice this also, that even though Abram sinned, God still came to his aid in order to fulfill the promise that all the earths will be blessed. Now this is very important. God wanted this promise to be withheld through Sarai, undefiled, so much so that he afflicted the Pharaoh of Egypt with boils. Verse 18, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Verse 20, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Pharaoh should have had, by Egyptian law, Abraham tortured and executed. But he had already experienced the power behind Abram, and he wanted him escorted out of the royal realm as quickly as possible. So verse 1 of chapter 13 says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, the southern part of Israel, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. I'm going to give you three observations from what we just studied. Besides the fact that Abram's in the doghouse for probably eternity with his wife. Number one, prosperity is not always an indicator of God's blessing. In this particular case, the prosperity was received through deception and lies. So it's not always when someone prospers that God has blessed them, and it doesn't always indicate proper action on the part of the individual. Number two, this increase of wealth and livestock you're about to learn next week in chapter 13 brought on so much division within Abram's family that it caused his family to have to be separated. Lot had to move to a new region, which ultimately, through Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed his family. We'll learn about that. Wrath of God, the whole big deal. And verse three, or number three, here's the big one I want you to get today. This decision to leave God's promised land, land I will show you, God didn't tell him to leave, went down into Egypt, deceived the Pharaoh, his wife was taken, plagues, boils, the whole thing. And in the midst of it, Pharaoh gives him payment. What was his payment? Oxen, sheep, camels, maidservants, and men servants. If you know anything about Bible history at all, you know that the arrival of the destruction within Abram's family was the arrival of an Egyptian handmaid by the name of Hagar. The only place to get an Egyptian handmaid at this time 
is from Egypt during his time dwelling there. One of the gifts given to him through the disobedience and the deception was this woman who came into his house, whom he later had relations with, out of which arrived the Arab nation. Today, the nation of Islam and the nation of Israel, who are at war against each other, found its birth here in the deception of Abram, disobeying God, leaving the promised land, and going and doing his own thing. And we still deal with it today because of disobedience, stepping out of the will of God. Now get this, Abraham obeyed. He separated himself from the corruption around him. He left the Ur of the Chaldees. He left Haran. He went to the promised land, worshipped God. Everything looked great. And things turned bad. Some disruption came in his life, and he walked away from God. Why? He had a fundamental lack of understanding because he was so immature in his faith. He didn't know enough about the nature and the character of God to trust God to provide for him in the midst of a famine. Those who are seniors here in the faith, those who are mature in the faith, those who have walked with Christ a long time, they know that when famine comes, you step back and recalibrate. Trust God to provide. Immature faith says, I've got to find a solution to this. And runs and tries to find their own solution. Abraham let his faith be based on his feeling. But Scripture says true faith is based on the Word of God. That's what it says in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The more we know about God, the more we experience Him, the more we understand Him, the easier it is to walk along with Him. Now, most of us in this room will never be called to leave our place of comfort, our safety net, and launch into something brand new with no assurance that it's going to work. Most of us will never face that. But we do face trials like Abraham faced every single day on the job, in the workplace, how we respond to those people pushing back on us about what we believe, why we believe what we believe. It brings a challenge to our faith. And we have to ask ourselves, do I really believe what God said when He promised this? If you are to live out your spiritual inheritance in Christ, you have to display a faith in God's Word no matter what. You have to remain true to it. James said, faith without obedience is dead. You read about that yourself later today. Go to James chapter 2 and read that chapter. Faith without obedience is dead. Abraham did not exhibit obedience. I would encourage you when you don't understand why you are where you are and things seem to be falling apart around you, God, what are you doing? I know I'm supposed to be in this promised land, but look at the famine around me. God says, remain where you're at until I tell you something different. God will give you the direction. He alone is in control of all the circumstances in your life. You are safer in a famine in His will than you are in Pharaoh's palace outside of His will. This story just revealed that. Abraham, because he was so immature in the faith, failed the test of circumstances. But 
he gets an opportunity to restore himself. The reality is, when we don't let God rule, he still accomplishes a purpose. But we pay a terrible price for our disobedience. Now, you might conclude when you look at this story, especially if this is the first time you saw it, what happened to Abram wasn't all that bad. He got his wife back. God displayed his power in Pharaoh's life. His wife was unscathed, and he got all this wealth. You know, Abram paid a terrible price for this disobedience decision. Everything that he gained in Egypt as a result of going down there came back to haunt him later. Every one of those circumstances. When you look at Lot and you look at Genesis chapter 13, and it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and looked unto the land of the Jordan Valley and compared it to the beauty that he experienced in Egypt, you realize that even his nephew was affected by what they experienced in the land of Egypt. And it took him down an entirely new path. I told you last week this quote. The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. There's an ancient Jewish proverb in which uh, there's a, a writer by the name of Rashi. You might get familiar with that name because I'll, I'll use it a few more times. But Rashi wrote a Jewish blessing. And he said, this is a blessing that men should bestow upon their sons when they reach adulthood and they're ready to step into the world on their own. And this is the blessing. May you be like our great father, Abraham. Well, not yet. Not according to what we've seen here. But the Abraham historical, the exalted Abraham, the one who's a man of faith, as you're going to find as we move through these passages, Abraham got to the point where he looked back on these situations and said, I've learned my lesson there. I can trust God. So eventually that Jewish blessing became a very important thing to a teenage child. God says, if you're faithful to forgive, or to confess your sins to me, I will be faithful to forgive your sins. 1 John 1.9 Abram got to the point where he had to recognize he needed to start all over again. So what we find next week when we move into the next chapter, Abram starting all over and moving back to the Holy Land. That's pretty exciting stuff. God gives us new understanding of how He's building His nation to prepare for the arrival of the Promised One. Okay, enough detail. I can see your brains are on fire right now. Smoke coming up. How about if we take some time and pray? And then uh, I want to encourage you, especially if you're new here, to hang around for a while and enjoy the bagels and the juice out there. It's a chance for you to get to know each other here at the church. A chance for fellowship. Okay? Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you so much for a time of teaching and for a, a time of having our ears opened. But that doesn't do any good, Father, if it's not actually applied to our heart. So the truth that we learn about great historical figures like Abram and how they made mistakes, but yet how you redeemed them and pulled them back, those are really great for us, Father. But help us not to forget them. God, tomorrow when we're back in the office again or back in school or doing work around the house, make the reality of your word alive. Don't let us forget these truths. 
So when we come to a point where we can obey you, Father, or disobey you and trust you or not trust you, help us to see these examples because you promised these things were written so that we might understand. You are faithful, and we declare that with confidence. God, help us to go out of here with a holy boldness this week to represent you well to the world around us. Not so that we can condemn, but so that we can convince and win over. You are the God of the ages, and we praise you for that. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Have an excellent week.